it is an amazing comfort for us because it means that the ability to win the wars that are before us are not based on our strength. It's not based on our goodness or, or our perfection or our ability or talent, but it's based on God's eternal sovereignty. And what that means is God cannot lose, and therefore any battle that is set before you, if it belongs to the Lord, you have already won. Church, I, I, I think we say this sometimes, we sing these songs, but sometimes in the, in the heat of the moment and in our emotions, we, we, we get overcome with fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of how others will look at us. But the whole purpose of hiding the word of God in our heart is that when the enemy speaks lies, we can remind ourselves of the truth. Because God doesn't need to be reminded. He knows you. He formed you in your mother's womb. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that the battle belongs to our God. You may be seated. Before I dismiss everybody, I want to make one real quick announcement and we'll get going into our message here. Um, this month, part of what uh, Pastor Pond have talked about is doing uh, is a series kind of on the word. So last month or last week you heard Pastor Powell talking about Psalms 119 and tonight I'm going to talk about meditating on the word. But all of this is leading up to the next two Wednesdays where we are going to sit up here kind of like we did with our prophetic principles. And we're going to talk about some of the hard-hitting issues that are facing our nation and our world. And what should be the response of the church? What should be your response when you're confronted with some of these tough issues that sometimes aren't as clear as people make them out to be? So with that being said... Between now and next week, if you will text myself or Pastor Powell any questions that you have, any questions about what's going on in the world, how we should respond, what should be the church's stance or response to those things, text them to us and we are going to get through as many as we can over the next two Wednesdays. So again, text myself or Pastor Powell any questions or comments or concerns or thoughts on how we can use the word to address the current state of our nation. At this time, I'm going to release all those who need to go to uh, the Power Hour, Youth, the Ladies Bible Study, and I think that's it. Did I forget anybody? Okay. While they're being dismissed, if everyone would like to turn uh, to Psalms chapter 1 and stand with me. Psalms chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and reading just to verse 2, says simply this. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Lord, we pray that you would anoint this word and that you would anoint our heart, Lord. Let the, the, the ground be fertile and ready to gladly receive your word, that in due season it may bring forth fruit. We thank you for all of those who are here, those who will hear the message at a later time, that your word would not return into you void. We give you all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned a minute ago, a minute ago tonight I'm going to talk to you on a fairly simple topic, meditate on the word. 
my hope is, is that as we go through this lesson, that we would all have a little better understanding of what this phrase really means to meditate on the word. In the, in the world's perspective, in the world's eyes, the term meditate is often thought of in the sense of, you know, sitting in a quiet space with your legs crossed and, you know, uh, thinking about nothing or thinking about a specific thing, right? It has a very new age connotation to it. But the scripture is actually full of verses that tell us to meditate on the word. So we need to understand what what does scripture actually mean by this? What was God's intention in telling the church to meditate on the word? Now, originally, the, the series that I wanted to do for this month was to talk about bloom where you are planted. But, you know, the, the purpose of preaching, the purpose of teaching is to equip the saints to reach out to the world. Which means that at times, any minister in any circumstance needs to be sensitive enough to the Spirit to know what the people need. I am all for planning. We actually, at our last pastoral meeting at the end of last year, we planned out every theme for Wednesdays throughout this entire year. I think it's good to be prepared. I think it's good to study, to, be, to, to plan for things. But that can never take the place of also being sensitive and submitted to the Spirit of God. Because, as you know, things in this world can change on a dime. New issues come up. Uh, uh, laws come out that we agree or disagree with. Wars start. All sorts of different things that happen around the world. And the church always needs to be in a place where it is sensitive enough to the Spirit of God to know how it is we should respond to the world in their time of need. I have said many, many times from this pulpit that in God's eyes, there are really only two classifications of people. God does not look at mankind as black or white. God does not look at mankind as rich or poor. That's what we do. We divide ourselves. But God only sees mankind as two categories. And that is the saved and those who need to be saved. And it is the responsibility of those in the first category to reach for those in the second category. Unfortunately, we live in a world right now, and Pastor Paul kind of mentioned this last week, and it's worth reiterating. We live in a world that is changed and perverted the notion of truth to a place that truth doesn't even really mean anything to most people anymore. Truth is subjective, the world will say. Truth is, is different between your experiences and my experiences. And because the world holds this view that, that truth is subjective and is defined by whoever is speaking, no one can ever really be wrong. Because while you may not agree with that truth, maybe I agree with that truth, therefore I'm not wrong. But I hope that we as the church know that this is completely contradictory to the word of God. I... Uh, I was looking online, I always, um, whenever I'm studying for a topic, whenever I'm, I'm kind of preparing my mind to, to teach on an idea or a theme, um, I, I, of course, I read scripture first, and I let that be the, the beginning point for shaping my views on it, but I, I also like to go and kind of look around online at um, uh, what, what others in the world are say or think about this topic, or either what other religions or other denominations say about a topic. And the reason that I do that is because while I know 
what the word says. I know that is absolute truth. Sometimes I find it helpful to know what others are thinking so that I can help them see that that line of reasoning is not in alignment with the word of God. So as I was thinking about this concept of truth and, and how the world thinks it's completely a, a malleable term, the truth is, truth is true regardless of your feelings. Truth is not defined by your emotional state. Truth is not defined by what your parents said. Truth is not defined by who's in authority over a country, over a nation. Truth is not even defined by the Queen of England. Truth is always true because God is truth. See, we say that sometimes, but I don't know that we completely wrap our mind around what that means. Because on one hand, we say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But our natural tendency within our flesh is, is always looking for some hidden knowledge. Something, something that we can know that other people don't know. right? So we're always looking out and, and hearing new doctrines and thinking of new things and, and ways that we can be smarter than other people and, and know things that other people don't know. But what I want you to understand is that everything there is to know about truth has been established from the foundation of the world. You will never learn anything about truth that was not already established in the beginning. And therefore, when we are seeking truth, we have to recognize that we are truly seeking God. Because he is the determinate factor of what truth is. It is a characteristic of his very being. And when you really understand that, when you put that in your heart, then you will know that if I ever think of anything that I believe is true, but it ends up being contradictory to the word, I automatically know I am wrong. Because his truth was established from before the foundations of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 32, a very familiar passage, and ye shall know truth, or ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, for as much as we quote that verse in, in pews across this country, Hollywood also has attempted to steal this phrase. There are so many movies and TV shows and stories and comic books and videos that attempt to take this phrase, know the truth and it'll make you free. And they mold it into whatever it is that they are talking about. They will tell you when you learn the secret origins of this country or, or of that people or of this, this group over here. When you learn that truth, then you will be made free. And what they are saying is that freedom is based on your understanding of a topic. Which means that you can only have a little bit of freedom or a lot of freedom based on your knowledge level. But that's not what scripture teaches us. It says that we know truth and the truth will make us free. You're either free or you're not free. Right? You wouldn't find a prisoner standing with half of his body standing in a cell and the other half of his body standing outside the cell and then declare himself to be free. He's either in the prison or he's out of the prison. 
Sometimes this world likes to kind of skew this, this definition and this idea that, that freedom for you is just the simple fact that you can do whatever you want and nobody can tell you anything, and that's, that's freedom, but that's not biblical freedom. All across this world, we hear phrases about, I speak my truth, or I am speaking truth to power, or stand up for your truth. And while all of those feel good on an emotional level, they are all wrong. Because truth is not defined by you, or me, or your emotions, or my emotions. Truth is true because it is God's very character. Some Christians try to treat their relationship with Jesus like a magic eight ball. When they face a hard decision, they're like, okay, Jesus, the red door or the blue door? Okay. And that, that for some people, constitutes seeking God to know how I should respond to a situation. I simply just ask God, and that's all I need out of my relationship with him. I don't have to really know him beyond that. I just trust him, and therefore, if I ask and I feel like this is what I should do, then, okay, must be right, right? God, God gave me that emotion, so that's what I should do. Look at Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, we're going to be looking at 3 through 7. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Listen to what he says here. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And I realize this is not in the book of Romans. This has to be most likely in the book of John, and I made a typo on my paper here because Jesus did not have this conversation in the book of Romans. So I apologize. It's back in the book of John. I'll figure out what, exactly what the chapter and verse was later. It says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm going to pause right here for one second. When I say this, you're like, yeah, Jeremy, you've said that a hundred times. And I'll probably say it a hundred more. Truth. This phrase that is used here for truth means reality. It isn't a subjective term that means in the way that you perceive something. It is a statement of reality. Jesus is the Savior. It doesn't matter how you perceive it. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter what, what historians will say about Jesus. But if Jesus said he is the Savior, that's it. He is the Savior because he is reality. There is no other look or, or view that you can take on it. Because Jesus says that he is reality. And he says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And look here in verse 7. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. Now think about who he's talking to here. Jesus is talking to his disciples. The ones who have walked with him during his earthly ministry. The ones who have seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet we hear Jesus speaking to at least some, if not all of them, saying, if you had really known me, you would understand what I'm saying when I say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
If you truly understood who I was, you would know that I am the way to get to where I'm talking about. But what this shows us is that just a simple familiarity with Jesus or a simple familiarity with the word is not enough. It is not sufficient enough to say you truly know who God is. Now look at John chapter 8. We're going back to the verse we open with, or the second part we open with in John 8, 32, where it says that, that the truth shall set you free. But, but I want you to look at verse 31, because if, if the disciples were unable to know who Jesus truly was, what, what chance do we have? But listen to what he says here in John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. These two verses are progressive on one another. And what I mean by that is that you can't get to steps two and three without doing step one first. You can't know truth to make you free if first you don't continue in his word. I didn't make that up. That's what the scripture says. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Now, I'm trying to be a little conscientious of time here because I would like to pray here at the end. So let me just kind of very quickly break down the three sections of this, this passage here. Right? And we're going to kind of start at the end and work our way backwards. First of all, what does it mean when it says the truth shall make you free? What kind of freedom? What is it talking about? As I mentioned before, the world will say freedom is the ability for you to do whatever you want to do and no one's stopping you. No one making you do anything, and freedom is just you do you, right? That, of course, is not what the scripture is telling us here. When it says that we will be free, it means that we will be free from the power and the penalty of sin. The reason why so many have a hard time understanding this concept is, it's because they see Jesus as this taskmaster who's laid out these rules that says you must do this and this to make it to heaven. So you're not really free. He's like ordering you on what to do. But what we fail to recognize is that without Christ, we are walking directly toward the pits of hell with no possibility, no choice, and no option to escape. That on our own, in our own good flesh, there is nothing good. And therefore, we cannot pay the penalty for our sin. So without Christ, there is no option but to walk directly toward hell. But what Jesus is saying is that once you know me, and you know my righteousness and my truth, you now have the ability to choose life or death. And out of all the choices that I could be given... That's probably the most important choice that I need in my life. The ability to choose truth over a lie. To choose life over death. The second part of this, now that we say, well, that's what it means to make free, but what does it mean you shall know the truth? What does it mean to know truth? One of the most powerful answers to this question is found in John chapter 10, 
starting in verse 24. John chapter 10, starting in 24. Then came the Jews around about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed me not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. These Jews that came to Jesus and they were, they were trying to trick him is what they were really trying to do. They were constantly trying to put him in an imposition where he would say something and they would be like, see, see, you're, you're, you're wrong. That's not what the word says. So he's telling the Jews, or the Jews tell him, they say, just tell us the truth. Say out loud, are you God or are you somebody else? Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, look, I already told you the answer to that question. I've already laid that out there. I've already showed you the signs and the miracles that show and prove that I am who I say I am. But you don't acknowledge it because you don't know truth. And then he says, those who hear my voice, those are the ones who know truth. See, we, we know Jesus is truth, so we need to know Jesus, right? We need to know Jesus to know what truth is, but it goes beyond a simple cursory knowledge of Jesus was this historical figure who died on a cross. Jesus is more than something we just talk about on a Sunday with good stories that make us feel good. To know Jesus is referring to a relationship. You can't say you know what truth is if you don't have a relationship with truth. Some days when I read the, the word, I, ha, I feel like Isaiah in saying, woe is me. Because I read passages like this where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. But not only do they hear my voice, they do what I tell them to do. And I'm like, God, there are definitely times where I don't always do what you tell me to do. I don't want to be like the hypocritical Jews just trying to feel righteous on my own. But I want to be truly submitted to what truth is. And that only comes through relationship. No degree is going to give you that. No amount of money is going to give you that. It only comes through relationship. Now let's look back here at the last part. It says, if you continue in my word, what does it mean to continue in my word? And this is the kind of the crux of what we're, we're talking about tonight. And, and that is that we meditate on the word. Psalms chapter 1, we read in the beginning here. But let's go Psalms chapter 1. We're going to read 1 through 3. It says this. It says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. 
And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. What this passage is telling us is that for us to be like the tree planted by the water, that we, we continue to grow, that we, play, we place down roots that are so deep because of our proximity to our food source, that we can continue to grow, that our, our leaves would not wither, that we would bring forth healthy fruit on a regular basis. That the way that we become like that tree is by meditating on the Word of God both day and night. But you may say, what does that mean exactly? What do you mean meditate on the word day and night? Some people look at this word meditate and they, it means that when I have my Bible open in front of me and I'm reading a verse, that's when I'm meditating on the word. Okay, by that definition only then, you have to have the Bible open in front of you constantly. You can never close it and you can never stop reading. Because scripture tells us that we need to be meditating on the word always. Day and night. And we have other things in life we have to do. Other things even within ministry that we have to do. That we can't seclude ourselves away from the world and only just sit and read the word until we die. It's not what God wants, right? Because how can we reach others if we seclude ourselves from others? So what does it really mean? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. The word that's used here for meditate in the, in the, message, or the uh, scripture we just read, it means to muse or to contemplate, to think intently on. Meditating is when you think on the word of God in order to get a better, fuller, deeper understanding of what it means. Meditating is done in the mind. Now let's read ch uh, chapter 12 of Romans. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It is only when you change your thoughts you can be truly transformed. You see, meditating on the word means that through your day-to-day -day life, you consider the precepts of God and how they apply to your life. Meditating on the word means that you strive to know the heartbeat of God. It goes beyond memorizing a few verses. It goes beyond hearing a sermon on a Sunday or a Wednesday. And none of those things are bad. And I dare say all of those things are necessary. But it cannot be the extent to which you meditate on the Word of God. What I'm hoping that you take away from this message is simply that this world is so full of lies and perversion, the only way you can hope to not be deceived is to truly hide the Word of God in your heart. The Bible says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that all things live, that we, we define our world, what we love, what we cherish, those things, the things we hide in our heart. I find it interesting that when it's talking about Mary in the book of Luke and it, she's observing the things that Jesus is doing, it keeps saying this phrase over and over that she took all of those things and she treasured it in her heart. 
it went beyond just a memory of something that happened, but to something that had so much value to her that it resided within her. And this is what David is talking about when he says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. It doesn't mean he just remembers the law, but it means he treasures the law so much that he uses it as his way to view what is right and what is wrong. It is the measuring stick by which he decides what choices are good and what choices are bad. Meditating on the word is a process, a lifestyle of everything that I do. I must always think about how would Jesus answer this question. And it's not the simple, what would Jesus do, right? I just say the magic letters and then poof, I know the answer. The only way to know truth is relationship. The only way to have a relationship is to hear what your spouse is saying. I've been married for 17 years. Goes by really fast. And if I never listened to what my wife likes, dislikes, the things that drive her, the things that, that motivates her, the things that make her feel fulfilled in life, if I never did that, First of all, we would most likely never make it 17 years. But even if we did, we would have a 17-year marriage that had never gone past the first year. It would be a weak, shallow, empty relationship. Because all I cared about in the relationship is what was in it for me. What do I want? What, what can you do for me? But in a healthy marriage, we can understand that for a marriage to truly work... I give unto her because I love her, I value her, I cherish her. So I want her to feel, feel fulfilled and complete and happy. And when she feels those things, it in turn makes me happy because I love her. I want her to feel those things. Not so that I get something out of it, but that's what relationship is about. And so it is with our relationship with God. If your relationship with God is simply defined by what God can do for you, how God can bless you and give you the things that you want, that is a very shallow relationship. And it's one that I'm afraid will fall apart as soon as you stop getting what you want. But when you love God, when you truly cherish the King of Kings, your heartbeat will begin to seek to please him. To do the things that make him proud. To do the things that make him happy. And when we do that, we get to know God more and more. You, you see the cycle here? Because now the more I know God, the more I truly know truth. And the more I understand truth, the freer I become from the penalty and the influence of the sin of this world. As I begin to slowly shut out the desires of all of this and truly meditate on what my life means in relationship with God, it's His voice that I hear more than the world's voice. And the freedom that comes in that is a, an assurance that I am protected and safe in the arms of my Father. I don't have to live in fear day by day by the things that are happening on the news. 
because I know that my God has all things in control. Now, I, I want to tell you a little story here, and I know that none of you were ever like this as kids, and none of your kids have ever been like this, so just indulge me for a moment. There is nothing more frustrating to me as a dad than when I tell my kids, I'm specifically thinking of Genevieve, okay, when I tell Genevieve over and over, don't do that. Don't do that. It's, you're going to get hurt. Don't do that. But in Genevieve's mind, she thinks, well, I know that's what dad said, but he just doesn't understand. Or I know better than dad. It'll be okay. So then she goes and she does the thing that I told her not to do. And what happens? She ends up getting hurt. And then she starts crying. And she comes to me and says she's hurt. And I'm not going to lie in my flesh. I'm going to be like, duh, I told you so. Right? Look, I, I'm not trying to be holier than anyone here, okay? We all have those moments. Even if we don't say them out loud, in our minds we have those thoughts, right? Like, dude, I told you this was going to happen. But you didn't listen to me. But when it's all said and done, when all the tears have dried up, I try always my best to sit Genevieve down on my lap. And then I take the time to try to explain to her why I put rules in her life. I try my best, although sometimes I feel like it's just going right over her head. But I will continue to try for as long as I'm alive to help her to understand that the reason that I tell her the things that I tell her is because I love her. Because I don't ever want to see her hurt. I want the best for her. I want the best for all of my children. So I try and try and try to continually speak into their life in hopes that one day it will stick and they will understand and appreciate, but even more so that they will then turn around and raise kids that also love God, that also cherish His Word. As adults, we understand that kids are, are often driven by their emotions. We understand that they're impulsive, that, that they, we, we say they haven't lived enough life to really know better yet. We can understand that with kids. They lack the maturity to make wise decisions because they don't really understand the difference often between wisdom and foolishness. But we hope that as our children mature, they are driven less and less by their emotions and more by wisdom. We invest money and time into reading books and going to seminars and, and, and even maybe talking to therapists and, and, and elders in our lives to try to become, hopefully this is the goal here, that we're, we're all trying to become the best parents that we can. We're all still human and we all still make mistakes. None of us do it perfectly. But we should be striving to do the best that we can for our children and we understand this process of growth in kids and how that at some point doing the things that a seven-year-old does at the age of 30 is not normal anymore. It's not acceptable. We understand that you should have figured this out at this point. Like there's no maturity happening. There's no growth. You're still acting by your emotions and your impulsivity and not by wisdom. We understand that when we look in the natural. But, you know, for some reason... 
we can be guilty of refusing to invest the same time, money, and energy into maturing our walk with God. The reason the enemy is able to convince entire denominations to openly endorse homosexuality is because when your doctrine is based on emotions, you will surely be tossed about with every wind. Doctrine. The enemy loves when Christians follow their heart. Right? That's, this, that's the phrase that we often hear in our society. Just follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. If it makes you feel good, then it has to be right. The enemy loves Christians who have that mindset. Because when your emotions are what dictate your choices, and your emotions change on a dime, it means your convictions are never rooted in anything that's fixed. Your morality, what you believe is right and wrong, will change based on what you feel in the moment. But in our walk with God, that is not how we measure right and wrong. What determines truth, what determines righteousness, is not based on my emotions, but it's based on the Word of God. I have seen many, many times the same general plot take place in many people's lives, across times, across cultures. But it's always the same basic formula. And here it is. The enemy will speak to you and say, aren't Christians supposed to love everyone? Okay, yeah, sure. Now the foundation has been laid. I, I wager that the overwhelming majority of Christians will answer yes when confronted with these questions, right? I mean, we should treat all people equally, right? Sure. We should love all people. Sure. The Word of God says that. I can't argue with that. That's true. God loved all of us, right? Even when we didn't love Him. But what happens is, it is this premise, this faulty premise, that then tries to take it one step further. You see, well, you say you love God. You say you believe everyone should be treated equally. So do you support my lifestyle? And when you say no, that it doesn't line up with the word of God, you just said that God loves everyone. And you said that because you're a Christian that you're supposed to love everyone. But how can you say you love everyone if you're calling my lifestyle sin? And church, as silly as that sounds, as, as much as we can hear this and be like, yeah, but obviously X, Y, Z. I am always amazed at how many people get lost in the emotion of the moment and are willing to then compromise truth, compromise what they know to be the word of God because they don't want to offend or hurt someone else's feelings. They don't want to rock the boat. So because of that, because of that fear of offending someone else, they instead are willing to compromise truth to appease other people. They'll say love is love, and therefore if you call my lifestyle sin, you don't really love others. 
if emotions is what dictates your morality, you're in danger because in your emotions there are no fixed points. There is nothing that is stationary that allows you to consistently and correctly judge between right and wrong. But sometimes when we're stressed and we have things, so many things going on in our lives, it is easy to take the approach of, I'll do me, you do you, right? You do whatever you want over there, I don't care, doesn't bother me, just don't tell me what I have to do, all good. And in theory, that seems, seems okay, right? But listen to what 1 Timothy 4 says. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. You have to understand the context of what's taking place here. Timothy was someone, was, was his, his child in the faith is what is often referred to. It is, is someone that, that Paul has been pouring into to help him to grow up in strength and maturity. Because Timothy then is responsible for pastoring and leading and shepherding other people. So as Paul is writing to Timothy, he is giving him the things that he thinks is most critical for him to know in order to be able to speak into other people's lives. So listen what he says in 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 15. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Notice the word there, that hear thee. That means that Timothy can't be a secret closet Christian so that he doesn't offend anyone else and expect anyone else to know what they should do. But Paul is telling Timothy that you must be consistent in your faith, consistent in your walk with God, and consistent in the things that you say. Meaning that you better never change truth to appease somebody else. Now I hope that everyone here has known me long enough and well enough to know that I'm not a fan of going up to someone and saying, you're going to hell and Jesus hates you. If you've ever heard me teach, you know that is not my heartbeat, not what I stand for. I believe in scripture where it says that we do all things in love. That we seek peace with all men. I believe all of that. But we never seek peace with all men at the cost of changing doctrine. At the cost of holding truth that someone is seeking because we are afraid of how they may feel about it. If someone comes to you and says, why do you believe what you believe? And you say in your mind, ooh, they, they may not agree with me, so I'm just not really going to like tell them the whole truth. I'll just kind of water it down and say this little piece over here. No, that is not what God calls us to do. Do it in love, do it in faith, but you better do it in truth. Because without truth, your love and your peace mean nothing. It's not that this or this, you have to have both together. Let us never compromise truth for the sake of easy. I'm going to get to the end here. I want to, I want to close tonight's lesson. I want to tell you a little story. It's a little story of something that happened to me at work um, not all that long ago. 
that I think highlights some of the struggles that we face as Christians, but also will hopefully help you to understand why you can never choose the easy route instead of the truthful route. Most of you know that, that I work uh, as a nurse in the emergency room. Um, and in the emergency room, in the emergency room, I find that there is one job, one role in that department that I find harder and more taxing than any other role. Now, you say, well, it's an ER. I mean, everything's like, you, you see people at their worst all the time. I see people uh, who, who come in or who are having psychotic episodes or who are on drugs or who are literally on the verge of death. All of that's hard. But, and that is all true, but there's one, one position that I I don't want to say I hate the most, but man, sometimes I, I am so glad when the night finally finishes. And that is the role of the triage nurse. Triage is just, it's a French word. It just simply means to sort, to put things into groups or categories. And if you've ever gone to an ER, you've met the triage nurse. Because he or she is the one who first greets you and asks you, what's wrong? What, my phrase is, I always say, what brings you in to see us tonight? And then I start to hear their complaints. The reason why this job is so hard. On the one hand, there are nights why I come into work, and I start at 7 at night. I'll come in, and it is busy. The whole waiting room is completely full. All the chairs are taken, and sometimes there are people standing in the hallway. And you go out there, and you need to get report from the nurse that you're replacing. That nurse has to tell you who is the most sickest, out here, who, who is the most critical, who needs to be seen first. So you're trying to get all of this information from them. But as you're trying to get this information, you can feel the eyes of all those patients and family members going, like burning a hole in the side of your head. Like, when are you going to do something for my family member? When are you going to do something to take care of my pain? In my brain, what I want to say, like, dude, I literally just showed up. Like, let me figure out what's going on before I can even help you, right? But I can't say that. That has to stay in here, right? I can't speak that out loud. Uh, some nurses do, but, but you shouldn't do that. So you get out there and you start off and the shift is already crazy and there's all these people. And yet you, as this nurse with all of these emotions running rampant, all of these people who are angry, these people who are puking in bags and, and cussing at you over here and family members saying that you don't care about their family, you have to be as objective as possible and look at all of these people and say, who really needs to see the doctor first? Who can wait long and who, if they wait too long, will end up dead? That's a heavy burden. It's a hard thing to look out there and see all of these people crying and looking at you, wanting, them, wanting you to fix them and knowing that there's only so many resources you have. They get mad at the triage nurse and say, why aren't you moving faster? And I want to tell them, I'm out here with you. I'm not in the back with the patients. There's ambulances that show up. There are people who are really sick. I can't, I can't race them through. And sometimes it's super easy. Sometimes you say, well, well, if a person comes in with like a gunshot wound, you automatically know they're more important than the person who came in because they had a cold. Sure. But I will tell you, the vast majority of the time, people who come to the ER don't have 
those obviously glaring outward things that everyone who looks at them would say, oh, yeah, they need to go. Most of the time, it's people coming in, oh, my stomach has been hurting for like a day now. Or, oh, I've had this headache for like a week. Or, oh, my chest hurts so bad. It's things that you can't see with your eyes. It's things that you're trying to listen to all the information and filter through all of this information and to say what, what is really ind indicative here of something that is an emergency. So one night I was working, and it was somewhere around 4 o'clock in the morning, and this, this guy comes in and he's in a wheelchair. And I'm trying to be very careful not to say any ages, any identifying characteristics here, okay? So a, a, an individual came in. And this individual told me that he, he was sure that he had, I cannot say a pronoun, <laughs> as much as I try not to, I can't. He was very concerned that he had a blood clot. He knew he had a blood clot and that he was an emergency and he had to be seen right now and that we needed to call the vascular surgeon team. I'm not kidding. This is what he said to me. He's like, go get the surgeon on call. Thoughts up here, don't come out here. Okay. So, this man comes in, and so I'm asking him, like, what makes you think you have a blood clot? And he tells me, I had heart surgery five days ago. Now, in my brain, I'm like, okay, well, that is a, a factor to consider, right? Just had open heart surgery five days ago. Plenty of complications with that. Okay, all right, and I'm listening, I'm listening. And I say, okay, well, but what makes you think that, that you feel like you know you have a blood clot? And he, he, he identifies a location on the outside of his body, and it's, it was a bump, and he says to me, look, I have a blood clot. And in my brain, I'm like, sir, you have no idea what you're talking about. A small bump on the outside of your extremity is not a blood clot that's in your bloodstream that's going to kill you. So I understand the concern. I get it. I mean, you had open heart surgery. I, I totally understand why you would be kind of nervous. I, I, I get that. But as this is happening, as he's telling me the story, a much younger individual comes through the door. And this individual is like huffing and puffing, man, like really working hard to breathe. But you can tell this individual is trying not to be dramatic. And those are the ones I worry about the most. The ones who tend to try to, to minimize as much as they possibly can, man, many times those are the ones who, who need help the fastest. And there's some spiritual parallels I may end up getting there. But here's what happens. This individual walks through the door, and he's huffing and puffing. And I'm talking to this individual, and I look, and I see him all the way across the room. As he gets close enough, I said, hey, what brings you in tonight, buddy? And he says, I don't know. I've just, I had this rash, like, on my stomach, and it's kind of started spreading upwards. And now it's, like, right here around my neck, and my throat's getting itchy. And so this if you have any medical knowledge, this is concerning, very concerning. And we're talking minutes of difference can, can be a difference between life and death. So I asked this individual, I said, do you have any allergies that you know of? And he said, no, I have no allergies. And then I say, okay, have you started any new medications? And this individual starts saying to me, he's like, I started amoxicillin? Yes. Oh, boy. So those of you who don't know, amoxicillin is very common to have an allergy to. And for some people, you don't have it until you're an adult because it's an antibiotic you may never need. So he had started that medication about 14 hours before he came to us, and it kept getting worse and worse. And I immediately left this other individual, brought him straight back to the first open room, 
and went and found the doc. They came in and gave him some epinephrine to open up the airways. I couldn't stay back there, though, because I had other people to tend to. So I leave. I say, okay, I got him where he needs to be. I walk back out to the front. And as I'm walking out to the front, the individual who I was talking to a minute ago says, as loud as he can so that I would hear, I can't believe a stupid little rash goes back before me. What he didn't know was that literally they were almost on the edge of intubating this individual because his airway had swollen so much that it almost completely occluded. Why am I telling you this? Because if we are not careful, sometimes we will be faced with a decision. And on the outside of this decision, we have so many emotional factors so many things on the outside trying to influence how we decide this. And if we respond only by looking at the external things, that we are likely to miss the one who is truly in danger of dying because we were only concerned about the emotions. You see, the reason that I knew that this guy was in so much danger is because I've studied. I went to college. I continue to read. I try my best to continue to learn so that when those cases walk through the door, I identify and I recognize this is danger. I have to train myself to look past just the emotional, external crying to see what's really wrong. Let's all stand. Church, what, what I hope that I'm able to illustrate to you tonight, what, I'm, what I hope you get out of this story it's not, not about me. I'm not, I'm not looking for a pat on my back, a good job, Jeremy. What I'm trying to show you is that there are moments that we make decisions in our lives that can forever change our relationships with others and, God forbid, our relationship with the King of Kings. All because we were more concerned about the temporary, external, emotional feelings as opposed to what is truly happening. So let's pray tonight. And I, I just want to pray this. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to seek truth above all other things. I pray, oh God, that we would love you so much that we would seek your word before any other person. That we would seek your word and look at it as the chief and principal thing. That when we see in the word where it says we should not do something, we don't need a second opinion. We don't need advice. But we just trust that you know all things. That we hear the voice of truth. And that in our day-to-day -day lives that we are so in love with you that we can still hear that voice speaking to us while we're working while we're in relationships with others. Help us, oh God, for the time of head that already men have changed the truth for a lie. But this world continues to wax worse and worse. Help us to stand strong in your word, in your truth, and know that there is nothing that can change the word of God. We give you all the glory. All the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.